Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. And it looks like we are live, I believe. G'day, mate. How you going? I'm great. How are you? Very good, mate. Very good for a Friday morning. We're doing it a little bit earlier today. Normally, we do it at midday, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's good to be with you a bit earlier today. I know you've got a lot on. So how many, how many uh, I guess, investing catch-ups or investing calls do you reckon you do a week? Um, actually, not that many, right? So the one I do with you is regular. Um, then uh, about once a month, I do an investor call. Uh, it's called the International Subscriber Call. This is for seven investing. And then probably I do maybe two calls uh, or three calls maybe with the seven investing team. Uh, I, I, then I'd hop on, on a call with if anyone wants to talk with me about something, uh, I might just hop onto a call. But I don't do that many calls, actually. Um, hmm. Yeah, I try to keep my day clean of meetings uh, so that's interesting because i find like it's really easy to get caught up in meetings and i'm always interested in how people manage that so ha- do you set time aside for reading and research because that obviously requires a different part of your brain where you're you're switching off and you're focused do you what are some of the things you do to allocate time to that yeah so when i was uh when i had a lot of meetings <laughs> i used to actually um try to allocate a specific time of day uh, and not every day but maybe every other day or every third day for doing something that is away from the usual things right because you want to read and you want to have some time um now I'm a little bit more easy like i basically I try to keep my morning hours. So we wake up, you know, uh, my wife and I, we both wake up very early. Uh, when I say very early, somewhere between 4.30 and, you know, sometimes even 4 o'clock in the morning. Hmm. Um, so we, we can easily get a couple of hours of work done in the morning, uh, have our coffee, uh, an espresso coffee, hmm. and uh, and then do some work, right? And that's the time when I, I would either read something or, you know, get on and chat with some group of folks and groups um, about stuff and and when i mean stuff i basically mean you know stock related company related and stuff like that and or read uh i've i'm subscribed to a bunch of newsletters that uh i try to stay on top if i can so that's when i would do all, all of that so morning is a good time for doing that but otherwise i just tend to now do it pretty much whenever i have time mm. um how about you you're busy right <laughs> yeah super busy Super busy. And it's, I, I don't like it, to be honest. I don't like being super busy. It's just, it takes away from all of the other things, the time for thinking, the time for reading. You know, I used to, I used to devote, um, I used to have months allocated to certain topics that I wanted to read. So for example, I might spend a month just learning about horticulture or learning about, you know, insert topic, it would just go in there. And I haven't had the chance to do that. So um, I would fit in, but when I was doing that, I would, I would walk, if, if I was walking to work, I would read and walk at the same time. Um, I would read over lunchtime, read for an hour before when I got to work um, and then after work as well. And I just haven't had time because everything's just been so intense. I find it really hard to switch between gears. Uh, and so nowadays what I tend to do is I tend to have an admin day on a Monday and 
with the exception of this podcast, I tend to put all of the podcasts and that type of growth stuff on a Wednesday um, because it aligns. And then uh, it's it's probably interesting, similar to you guys, because there are you know you're you're here in Australia and the teams over in the US. We've got in our investing team, we've got Patrick in Milan, um, and so what that means is it just throws the time out a little bit. So we end up doing really early morning meetings or in the afternoon uh, to make it fit. And so those investing meetings obviously have to come in every week. Um, and we do two of them a week. So, so that's basically how I do it. And I try and fit things around. I used to do a thing where I would have kind of like the Google play where you'd have back-to-back meetings for 15, 20 minutes and you just block your time out. But I, what I found is that, you know, in a startup environment, if you do that, you actually end up, if one of those dominoes falls, then the rest of them fall mm. and it becomes really, really hard to manage. So I had to and stop it impacts doing everybody else. That's right. Yeah. So you have to be really mindful of that. Um, and I think just final thing on this is as the, as our business grows, one of the things that I've noticed is that I, you obviously have to get further and further away from the tools because you have to be across more things. And again, I'm not sure if I really enjoy that, but um it's for everyone else's benefit. You have to keep yourself more flexible as you, as you grow, which is another kind of learning phase for me. But yeah, that's my kind of, that's my rant and my, um, my, my complaint for the week. But how about you, mate? What have you been up to this past week? What have you been up to? So uh, looking for stocks for uh, December was one of the things that I've been doing. Mm-hmm. What else have been doing? I've been doing a lot of, you know, a lot, a lot of earnings, actually US earnings have been happening. Mm. And uh, looking through a lot of companies that uh, I have recommended uh, where some stocks have fallen quite a bit on <laughs> earnings. Um, so, you know, just trying to see what's going on, what are people thinking? Uh, and, uh, you know, what I'm, I'm at a point where I actually, those 20% falls don't, um, I don't feel it. <laughs> so mm. I've gotten seen so many of them that, you know, I said, oh, okay, stuff like that happens, but, you know, it's easy for me to say that, but, you know, I understand that the other hand, if somebody has invested, you know, because you said, hey, this is a good stock and that has fallen 20%, it's really hard for the other side to sort of kind of accept that. Um, and so that I think about that, I, I've been thinking a lot about investor psychology, right? Uh, because many of the companies I tend to look at, they are a bit earlier stage, uh, a bit, um, I'd say, more retail dominated. And, and, you know, you'd know that any company that is retail dominated in terms of like uh, its ownership structure, then that just causes a lot of volatility. I mean, not to say that institutional ownership wouldn't cause volatility, but, but, you know, there's a lot Mm. of things that happen in retail land. Um, You know, if a group of people decide to leave the stock then a bunch of other people might decide to leave the stock, which might cause momentum (laughs) to be on the downside, which might then bring in some high frequency traders, (laughs) you know, and it's like a domino effect that can happen. Um, And and sometimes that can be an advantage. So I've been thinking about those sort of things, you know, that when, you know, movements uh, can be can be to your advantage, right? And that's, this is assuming that you know the business momentum is in the right direction, but the people momentum is not. Well, that's an advantage if you're thinking uh, long term. So those mm-hmm. sort of things. Um, what else have I been doing? That's been really it. That's good. Sounds like you've had plenty of time to think. Uh, I find those random ups and downs actually are great opportunities. They're just sometimes hard. From if you're re- making recommendations, it can be hard at times because you do want to pursue them, but it, it may come down to cadence and the amount of research you've done before you want to formalize that that investment research for people. But 
I think if you're an individual investor, I think that's one of your best opportunities is to have a decent understanding of quite a few really impressive businesses and then wait for those days to come. And even if it's just a small piece that you take, uh, you just make a small investment and you're ready on those days. I think that's a massive advantage for retail investors. Um, but like you said, investor psychology kicks in. Getting shook out of one of those is actually very easy too. So if you hold one and it falls 20% and you're like, well, what does everyone else know something I don't? That can quickly trigger a sell-off. Or conversely, we saw it with Roblox the other week. It, you know, the stock can end up 23% after you know dropping some, some notes. So um, yeah, really interesting. Uh, if you come to the bottom of that, um, that rabbit warren, I'd love to know where you, where you pop out because um, it's a really interesting topic for me, investor psychology. Well, you know, this is the last, last comment maybe on this. Uh, like the thing I think about a lot is essentially this, that the couple of things, most people are thinking uh, in terms of 12-month price targets. That's what Wall Street gives out. Most brokers would mm. give out a 12-month price target, right? Everybody's thinking 12 months. You have, can have an advantage if I'm just thinking instead of 12 months, maybe three years, right? That's it. That's just, just changing the time frame changes a lot. That's number one. Number two, I think like if the business execution is good and its business is misunderstood or whatever it is, then that's a huge advantage, right? I mean, because you could buy and you could be willing Absolutely. to wait, right? So, you know, you, you could be willing to wait and you could be willing to be wrong sort of in the short term, Um and that willingness to take that pain is actually, I think, what drives returns, right? Because, you know, if you're not willing to take the pain, because what I say is that if you don't have, if you are not willing to take the pain of being wrong, you're never going to get a 10 bagger or a hundred bagger or a 50 bagger, right? Because you want to be so sure about being right. You're going to pick the stuff that everybody else is also picking and you're going to likely land up with somewhere around the market return, right? So you have to be willing to be wrong. And willing to be wrong basically means that you might, you know, you're going to get some of them wrong as well. And you should be able to stomach that. So you have to be able to not just be willing, but also be able to stomach it when it happens. Um, I think this basically points to being just thinking long-term that, you know, not all of them have to work out, but some of them are going to work out. And uh, yeah, that's what this, that's what's going to matter. Mm. Um, and I agree completely. I think it depends on the type of investing. As you said, if you, if you want those multi-bag returns, you have to be prepared that Almost everyone at one point in time or all points in time are going to say, how overvalued is this company? How ridiculous is this valuation? Oh, have you seen this tiny little thing in the, the statements that could be a big thing? You know, it's very easy to get lured into that as well. That, you know, that, that narrative is actually, it's very, um, I guess, romantic to think, oh, I found something that could bring down this, you know, Goliath of, of, of a stock market, you know, gem. Um, and at the end of the day, a lot of that stuff just blows over and you just focus on the long-term structural trends of this business. Uh, hey, we've just had a question come in, mate. Maybe we'll fire away with this one pretty quick. Um, just because you mentioned you were going through quarterly notes. Um, the Equity Force on YouTube says, could you please share your thoughts on New Relic's quarterly result? I don't know if you've, if you follow the company. So New Relic, I don't follow. Uh, yeah. So I have nothing to uh, say about New Relic. If, I, if, if it was a company that I followed, I would happily share what I think. Mm. Yeah, no, it's not a company that I follow. I think um, it's from the Equity Force. I think he's Finok has brought this up a few times. Um, so yeah, if if you want to ask us a question, you can do that by the way by just heading into the YouTube channel and in the live chat there, just dropping your question in. We'll get to it if we can. Um, for those of you that aren't live, you can you can always find us on Twitter seven a Mahanti, 
and at Owen Rask. That's how you can find us. We always tweet and we're always happy to chat. So today we're going to talk about a few topics. The first one, which I thought I'd just riff on for a little while, is um, basically just an investing checklist. So a lot of investors use investing checklists. Some of them um, are good. Some of them are great. Some of them maybe kind of lead you astray at times. Um, so we'll talk a bit about that. And then we've got some topics to talk about in terms of LTM's AGM, um, China's slowdown. Um, I know you've got some thoughts on what that means for Australia. We've got um, electric vehicle companies in terms of you know some of these companies like Rivian coming to the market in incredible um, valuations. We've got Apple, the news of Apple, um, its car becoming autonomous. We've got um, a deal from Treasury Wines, so we're still waiting for that takeover to happen, but it, in the meantime, is doing its own takeover. For those of you that are new to the Australian Investors Podcast, there is a, de- a bet underway. Um, I said Treasury Wines would get taken over. Anirban said um, it might be A2 Milk, and in that time, A2 Milk has fallen and Treasury Wines has risen, so I don't know who's leading the race, but I dare say it might actually be you because <laughs> Treasury Wine is actually going on the offensive while A2 Milk is definitely on the defensive. So first of all, I thought, maybe I'll just ask, Matt, do you use any type of investing checklist? Do you use anything that you can just go to and be like, okay, this company meets this criteria, this criteria, but not that one? You know, like I don't have, uh, so I don't have a printed checklist, for example. Mm-hmm. I, have a men- I have lots of mental models and uh, things that I mentally do. Uh, and, and it's probably a hard, you know, someone who, pick stocks and then talks about stocks. A lot of the stuff that I think about, I just have a way of, I'm internally convinced and happy that that's it's a good stock. And I might not actually be able to explain it mm. because it's some sort of pattern recognition of some fuzzy pattern recognition stuff that I'm doing. Um, so no, I don't have a specific checklist. I'll let you go through because I think it's very interesting. And I'll add a few bobs at the end. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, we tend to have this. So at Rask, we have many different kind of, I guess, ways to identify companies. So I don't want to pigeonholes just to say that these five things are the only five things that we look for. We actually have an overarching philosophy about what, why we think investing works. And then within that, our process is formed. And the process includes an initial filter, which is at current, currently is about 43. There's a 43 points on this checklist. And the, the final points of the checklist are actually counterpoints. So um, if you think of the first the majority of the checklist, it's designed to help you find companies. And the last part of the checklist is designed to help you remove those companies through the through your process. And we ideally want this process to take three hours, but ultimately it takes a day or two because um, we often find companies that are from new industries and we have to learn a lot before we can fill out the checklist. What I'm going to share with you today is just a snippet of that. And this is just mainly focused on the qualitative side of things. So a lot of people use screening tools and I think screening tools come further up the investment process than this does. So screening tools help you find ideas. This, in terms of us, this, what, we're, what we're trying to find here is uh, basically, what we're trying to fi- find out is, is this business a quality business that we want to own for the long term? So the first thing on the list is, uh, is the business founder or family run? And it's a pretty simple one. You can find this in you know the, the company's About Us page. You can find it on Wikipedia, or you can find it in the, the proxy Statement sometimes, you can find it in the 10K in the US, or you can just find it in the annual report in Australia. It should be in the the bio section for management. And the basic premise here is that founders and families tend to perform better. There have been quite a few studies on this where families and founders have been at the helm of companies and they've outperformed the broad stock market and indeed most companies over the long term. 
Um, there are many different reasons why founders would tend to outperform. Um, but I guess the, the major thrust of this is that founders and families tend to think longer term. That would be my kind of insight. Their incentives are severely skewed to the long term, whereas professional CEOs tend to have incentives to the short term. And at certain times in a company's journey, maybe a professional CEO is warranted. But for the most part, we try and identify founders and families. Um, And I'll give you some examples from Australia. One of those would be, there's some quintessential examples here, being ARB Corp, the bull bar business, um, being listed for a long time, paid dividends, uh, and has been a very good performer in industrial business and is now in the USA as well. Uh, We have Reese, which is the plumbing business. So Reese is R-E-H on the ASX, and it it's basically the monopoly on plumbing supplies in Australia. You can go to big box retailers like Bunnings Warehouse, but if you're a plumber, uh, Reese is probably the only place you would bother going. Um, there's another company here in Australia called PWR, which does um, coolants, uh, not coolants, like cooling systems for Formula One cars. It's actually the world leader in that. It's based out of Brisbane, I believe. And it's, it's a business that is still found to run been run for a long time sensibly. There are many more examples of industrial businesses in this regard, but one that I'll call out from the US, which I know you know because we spoke about it a few weeks ago, is Okta. And Okta was co-founded by two people out of um, Salesforce, one of them being Todd McKinnon. And I find when I listen to that quarterly call with analysts, it's probably the most refreshing call I listen to because the way Todd just handles the questions and he says, yep, we're working on this on the long term. This, this is the risk. This is the upside. This is the downside. I, I just find it refreshing. So I don't know if you have any, anything else to add to that. No. So I, I love those. I mean, those uh, are some of the things that I would look at as well. Uh, the one thing I like to do, so, and this is, you know, basically the, the, the question would be that if you're looking for a very high quality business, but the business also is early stage, then that's that the two might be, Sort of like, you know, you would not get an Octa-like quality or an Apple-like quality in a very early stage business Mm. because it's just early stage. Uh, And a lot of those things might not hold. Although, I mean, it might still be founder run and things like that. Uh, And and those things would be be true. Um, One of the things that I like, really like seeing is um, what I would call is their mission statement. And I think mission statements matter Mm. because they tell you about what the founder or the founders or the people running the company are thinking and what sort of culture are they going to create sort of in the, uh, over the long term, right? And typically, a company with, with a big mission has a higher chance, in my opinion, to kind of succeed because, you know, big missions drive people, right? And, you know, if, mm. you, if, you, want to, if you want to do something big, then a lot of other people might be interested in joining in, joining forces. It drives people. So yeah. I think that 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 is uh, so companies with mission sort of I think are interesting. And then of course that ties in with you know what their addressable market is. You can have a very big mission, um, but if the addressable market is really small for that, then that really doesn't help. So if the two together come together, then I think you can create a business. So you have now opportunity for creating a business that can you know be a really big gem, a really nice mm-hmm. gem. Um, and can deliver really nice uh, long-term returns. So I, I agree. I, I love those mm. uh, key things. No, I, so about. it's actually funny that you mentioned that. So 
um, when I pulled these these five items from that forty plus checklist, the mission statement one was just below this one. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so, and I agree because, and I've struggled with this as someone who started a business, and you know we all come out and say, oh, we want to do good by our customers and we want to make money and we want to do this and that, but the mission statement for me, we had to go away on a retreat and just have a talk about this for three days. What are we actually doing? Who are we serving? And why are we doing it? And that, for me, actually created the North Star for our business. And I think without a good mission statement, without a vision statement as well, that's the one above that, many staff, and particularly new staff, don't actually know what is the reason that I'm rocking up to work today. And if you want to achieve something that's kind of ambitious and bold, that plays a big part in it. it it's one of those investing things that if you go and you learn finance, you're never gonna, they're never going to say, oh, you should go and read the mission statement and see how that came about. <laughs> but it's actually important, right? It actually, it matters. So yeah. I, I think I totally agree with you. Um, yeah. the, I was going to add another thing. So related to the mission statement, this, this, I think you've, you've spoken about this a number of times on the podcast. So I'll just mention this. Is it like, and if you can find a culture deck, like the yeah. Netflix culture deck that you talk about, or um, this, I was listening yesterday, somebody was talking about the, the Tesla Agile uh, deck it's also apparently floating around um, that tells you a lot about what the organization is thinking and how they're built and how mm. they're likely to grow um, and uh, you know not not everything is going to not everything that sounds great and exciting is going to work out but I think it tells you at least a little bit of the organization and their potential mm. it tells you where they want to go yeah it's fantastic That's where they want to go yes so the, the the second thing that I'll bring up is um, related to management and it comes back to HR review ratings. So this is actually an interesting one because, again, it's not something that people instantly think about because it's so hard to put a number to. It's really hard to quantify. But there are services out there that are trying to do this. And so this is about having a culture that fits the business. And so when we think about a lot of growth companies, a lot of SaaS businesses, a lot of Silicon Valley businesses, what we tend to think about is you know, from an outsider's perspective, you would think beanbags, ping pong tables, fruit on the tables, but you think it's all just like everyone walking around in hoodies. It's a really, you know, that's what the environment and that might work in Silicon Valley, but that same culture might not be the appropriate culture for another business. And so when I say these things, it's really about not one culture for everything, but what works for the business. And I use the example of flight center travel management uh, or travel group this is a business that's fueled by sales commissions. You go to a flight center store and you book your flights and your hotels with the, the travel agent. The staff is that environment is going to be different than if you're working at a hospital. Um, so the culture of a business is really important to me. And having you know, started life at, at a company that had um, a really, really impressive culture, um, I've taken this through into my investing and you can find out you can get a pulse check on culture by going to glassdoor.com or seek.com.au for Australian companies. And they give ratings of the CEO, ratings of, of management. Just be really mindful of how many ratings there are and they may be manipulated. You're just trying to just get some insight into the business. Uh, and, and if I can add just to list a final point. So what you want to do is probably think about comparison within category, right? Mm. So if you're looking at an IT services company, then you want to Think about other IT services company. Maybe think about a big name that you know and just compare with that. Uh, if you look at an oil and gas company, look at oil and gas. If you're, you know, looking at a mining company, then look at mining company. You don't compare across categories because that might be a little bit misleading. Yeah, absolutely. And um, LinkedIn is another great resource. Just as an adjunct to this, 
is actually seeing what who the company is trying to hire. I think that's actually really in, insightful as well because most companies don't hire employees unless they want to make a long-term commitment and they've, they've allocated a budget for that and there's a reason for it. So seeing what job ads are on um, LinkedIn can also be very valuable. Um, so the third one is um, history of execution. So we want to, this is again related to management because when you track management, I like to see long tenure for at least a few of the people in key positions. And you don't want someone that's been there a long time to be a poor allocator of capital or to have a really poor execution history. So what I'm talking about here is if you've seen um, lots of debt flowing into the business, lots of failed promises, margins weakening, um, you know, the debt on the balance sheet, shares being issued. Uh, these are all examples in my mind of poor execution. Um, you know, for one reason or another, sometimes you do have to issue shares, you do have to bring debt into a business. But one of the first things I'll do, particularly for small cap companies um, and the growth companies, is go to their go to like a, a ticket terminal or wherever you get your data from and go to the shares on issue and put that in a chart over 10 years. And you can see if it's rapidly rising, they're using equity to pay for the business. If the debt is going up as well, they're probably using a lot of outside capital. So we want to see, even though these businesses are early stage, we want to see them um, being prudent. And so execution comes in many ways, but I guess one of the best examples, which we talk about all the time is Apple. It's just executed again and again and again. We'll get to Apple in just a minute, but I don't know if there's any way that... You... Yeah, go on. <laughs> I was going to say, you're not giving me a chance to say anything about Tim Cook. <laughs> great capital allocator, one who does not get enough credit. Um, fantastic yeah. capital allocation. Really fantastic capital allocation. I mean, you know, the business was what, $350 billion worth or something like that when he took over. He's just spent, he's just been 10 years for him as CEO mm. uh, recently. And can just look at the returns he has delivered. And look at where he has taken the product portfolio. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. We'll get to Apple in just a minute because it is making another, um, I guess, announcement. Um, so growing TAM and an S-curve. So this is, um, uh, Julian says, nice sound dampening. Oh, and great. So professional. Thank you, Julian. I, I am it's, it's, I, mean, I am in a studio here. It's um, a bit of a makeshift studio here in Melbourne, but uh, we'll you know, it's a little bit better. So um, the number four thing is a growing TAM or total addressable market and S-curve. So the S-curve is basically when technologies get adopted and there's typically a, a, a t- period of time, which you don't always know in advance or you very rarely do, where a company experiences hyper growth or can s- severely uh, benefit from scale. And um, I'll give you an example of the Trade Desk, which is an advertising company, demand-side advertising platform. The Trade Desk helps advertising agencies serve ads across the internet. And obviously, the, the, the internet is a big thing, right? It's still growing, actually. As, and in the advertising space, the internet and digital ads are capturing more share than traditional advertising. But on top of that, programmatic advertising is a, a subset of that digital advertising space that's growing even faster again. So we have rapid um, adoption of this technology, and we also have a company that is um, the leader in that field. So the trade desk is actually, structurally speaking, is an A plus, and we can see that in the financials and how that's grown, uh, spread throughout the business over time in terms of margins, in terms of revenue. Really impressive business. So I try and we try and identify where businesses are in that cycle, and the trade desk was definitely, um, even though it was early when we first recommended it, it was actually already profitable, already earning good amounts of money. So. Um, yeah, I know you you spend a lot of time on this, so I'd probably just be second fiddle here. 
Um, no, I was muted. So no, I, you're not second fiddle. You just covered everything. Um, the the S curve is, you know, the only thing I'll say about the S curve is, it's very hard. Like there's this concept of crossing the chasm, right? Yeah. Whether or not you have hit enough, um, what the velocity and the momentum to actually exit, and also got the critical mass. That's very hard to know, sort of as it is happening. But for consumer discretionary things, you can kind of see it happen. Mm. And, and one of the one of the, um, the greatest fallacies is that people just don't people see it, but still don't realize it. <laughs> still yeah. don't take 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 it up, right? So I mean, you know, you could have seen that with the iPod. You saw that with the iPhone. We have seen that with the electric vehicles, and uh, you know. And you can mm. always think that you know you missed the boat, but what you you know you really at that point in time it's worth thinking about what's the percentage of penetration, right? Mm. And how fast is this new thing growing versus you know what its opportunity is, and 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 are enough people uh, on that bandwagon? So um, yeah, this is actually yeah, this is actually something about. that I reckon I learned from you in a way is basically being as far forward as you can on that innovation curve, getting products in your hand, trying products, doing things that allow you to experience what consumers are experiencing is actually a tremendous advantage. So if, for example, I own shares in Facebook and the other day I went and bought an Oculus device because Facebook is investing so much into this space. I thought I've just got to get one. It's, just, it's a research expense. Just go and buy one and experience what people are experiencing. And just having that insight into where they're going is fantastic. And so, uh, you know, another example, um, which was interesting from an Australian annuist perspective is the buy now, pay later space. All of a sudden people like, ah, disregarding it, disregarding it, but then it was on the shop fronts. And then once it was in the shop fronts, it was on the e-commerce checkouts and afterpay was everywhere. And then there was that velocity behind it. So really interesting examples. And if you can identify those businesses, you don't need many of them in an investing lifetime to do really well. So the final thing that I'll add to this five-point checklist is, does the business have pricing power? And this is hard to know in advance. You can do things like, does it have wide gross margins? Is it, uh, has it publicly said we're raising prices and you know that ha- is churn low? Um, I think there's a misunderstanding that people think because churn is low, it has pricing power. And that's not necessarily the case. You can have a product that costs nothing and then you will never have churn because there's no friction. So you've got to see how far, as the capitalist in you would see how far you can push that pricing power to know where that moat truly is. And I just give an example just to illustrate it for Australian. And you could use Intuit in the US, but I'm going to use Zero here in Australia and New Zealand is accounting software. Once you've got it in the business, it's very sticky. So you don't want to give it up. That means there's low churn. But then also 50 bucks a month is typically what you pay for a very, very important piece of software. So we're seeing these businesses now increase prices or add features to the platform for, for an extra dollar or two every month. Doesn't seem like much to most businesses. You know, I hope no one from zero is listening, but I would happily pay three or $400 a month because of the money that this saves us using this software, but I only pay $56 or something. And so that's an example of a business that you could get some sort of insight into in advance and think maybe this has pricing power, um, what are customers saying? How dependent are they upon it? So this is a really interesting one. Um, and just one final thing I'll maybe add on before I throw it back to you is I don't like to see businesses that have already flexed pricing power or, or are already capturing most of the value that they are creating. Because I think 
you know, Facebook did this really early on. It aggressively monetized the platform, but then it had pulled a lot of those, I guess, levers quite a few years ago. It's still growing. So it's very fortunate to have that, but it was probably for some businesses that would have been too soon, but Facebook pulled it off. Um, yep. So pricing power. Yeah, so uh, I, I love yeah the pricing part, uh, and you've covered it, almost everything there. So the only only thing I'll add there is a couple of components. So uh, you could start by pricing too low, mm. right? And as you said, you'd have you know so free is basically you can have zero churn if you want, but you could price too low and have uh, low churn. But if you start too low, you'd you'd have very hard time actually increasing. Nobody likes to have a 100% price increase. Even if you could have actually charged $100, but you started mm. by charging 50, you're not going to get to 100 anytime soon. That just doesn't happen. So what you really want to see is companies that are smart enough to do what I call an MVP. So minimal viable product, launch a product, minimum viable product, and then basically have these opportunities to sell new modules, new things that people are then willing to pay for. Because um, a great, great example is like, you know, what Apple does, right? It, it launches one product, then attaches another product, then attaches mm. another product, then attaches another product, right? And, and each is a, in, in itself a minimal viable product, right? And software does this very well. Um, and uh, you'd see that there are companies that would have, you know, one module that people need, then they'll add another module, then add another module, then add, I mean, you could have all those features in one platform, right? Yep. But you, you don't because it just makes it easier to uh, create value proposition. So there's a little bit of market, marketing there that's involved. Um, I think we talked about, um, just while you're talking about this, I think we talked about Volpara, which is the Australian Kiwi company that uh, creates breast density software and it's got this breast platform now. I think we talked about that, right? We said, I think you yeah. brought that up, that it might be priced at too low to begin with. Yeah, so like if you like if you're ARPU, so we talked about ARPU, I think, and we said you know average revenue per user. If you if you're sitting around one dollar, hoping to get to ten dollars is really really hard, right? You really need to get ten modules really going uh, to mm -hmm. get to ten dollars. So that I mean, that's you know maybe another example might be Catapult to some extent has uh, maybe some yeah. of those issues. Uh, again, great business. Uh, and haven't looked at it recently, so uh, you know. Uh, you could potentially charge, have charged more for just a baseline product, right? And mm. and and you'd still probably not see significant differences in in the um, in the churn rates, right? But once you've got the baseline product at a certain rate, maybe you're kind of stuck, and you mm. can't really double your uh, your pricing. So mm. uh, this happens sometimes. I think and some products also naturally are not amenable to expansion, right? I mean. I guess accounting is a great example, right? In accounting, you can have a couple of different variations of the same software, right? But it's very hard to sort of, unless you go completely um, on a different sort of vertical or horizontal, maybe. Like, you know, if you went from accounting to banking, mm. then, then you have a completely different opportunity, but that's not accounting, right? It's really hard. Like, I mean, accounting, you can have a, you know, a, a bronze package or a silver package and a gold package, and you can have three different prices, but that's, that's like the petrol pump and, mm. <laughs> you know, buying unleaded, uh, uh, leaded and then premium, whatever. Right. I mean, that's basically the pricing plan. Um, and it's almost like you have these pricing plans so that people maybe pick the middle one, right? <laughs> you feel too cheap to pick the cheap one and you look at the expensive one to justify the middle one, which is probably what, you know, the company anyways wanted you to pick. Exactly. Um, so uh, anyways, but I think pricing and how you structure an MVP is kind of important. 
Yeah. And I, I think like the land and expand model is very prominent in the US. You get one product in and then all of a sudden, what else can you sell them? And um, we saw that with like with Cloudflare, which we talked about last week. Uh, we've seen that with many other uh, tech businesses in that respect too, that have that. Um, I think this is going back about a month on the show where we talked about uh, dollar-based net retention, basically being able to charge existing users more. Um, and that is a kind of a, a part and parcel with that land and expand model. Okay, so we've got a few things that we want to talk about now. There is um, one more question that's come through, mate. I think this you may know something about this, so um, I'll just fire this off. But we're going to talk about some topical stuff in just a moment. Um, the question comes through and says, thoughts on the modern data stack? So many VCs have been funding headless BI, API-based solution. Any public or private companies that you are really excited about in that space? Yeah, so I guess, you know, depends on what how you define what the data stack means, right? I mean, you basically now data is sitting everywhere, right? So you have data sitting on the cloud. Uh, you could pull the data from the cloud and you could be someone like Snowflake, which is like basically a data warehousing kind of platform. Um, there's, uh, there's Databricks as well, which is a private company, probably likely to go public at some point. Um, so I don't know, like I don't have specific views on... About MongoDB or anything yeah, like Mongo, that? MongoDB is more, I look at MongoDB more as a database play and not really as a data play. It, yeah. it is manipulating data, just of a data of a different type. But then if you think about it, if you think about it from that point of view, then you would say, you know, stuff like Datadog and Splunk, they are also basically data plays, right? They're just looking at, you know, different types of data that's going uh, going back and forth. And you're sort of kind of analyzing that data, whether it's structured logs or unstructured logs, and, you know, whether you're doing IT monitoring. Basically, you're 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 monetizing data logs. Um, Alteryx, would that fit in there? Yeah, Alteryx also is a data manipulation tool, right? So, I mean, so I'm not, uh, I guess my my main issue might be is I don't see it as a stack stack in the real sense. Like to me, stack right. really means like a network stack where you know you have different layers of the network which work in different ways and there are well-defined protocols in each layer. I guess maybe the, the question is basically saying that, well, you have well-defined APIs now, so you can pull that out using APIs and you can push data back in using APIs and you can do processing using APIs. So, but... I think that's more fast evolving than a well-defined network stack or an operating system stack that is uh, more tightly defined. Mm. And, you know, so it's, I think it's more fast moving in that sense. But yeah, like, I mean, MongoDB, I mean, more broadly, I guess, MongoDB, Splunk, Datadog, Databricks, uh, Snowflake, uh, Alteryx, they would all sort of fit into that sort of, you know, taking data. I mean, you can say service now too, they're all, working mm. with data of some kind. Um, ServiceNow, there's a, yeah, ServiceNow would be a good example. Mm. Basically, the I guess this is a really topical thing. We could probably do a whole podcast on this because the data is is power in terms of um, if you can harness those insights. Uh, you, yeah, there's another company, I think it's IPOing uh, Informatica, is it? Um, I think that's the name of the business. They, <gasps> I think I think they used to be private like, or you should be yeah, they went. I think they were public went private and then public. And I, I don't know exactly, but okay. Yeah, there. Yeah, I, I was hearing about that IPO recently, and uh, it's basically taking like on-premise stuff and into the cloud. And yeah, it's a really interesting business. Right. Um, so Julian just commented. Oh, so here we go. Justin said AWS is a pretty 
has a pretty broad modern data stack. Yeah, that's probably fair. A lot of the big yeah. public infrastructures have that too. That's awesome. Um, so Julian just commented to say, the key to pricing power for me is the ability to delight customers. Your customers will happily go along with you if they love the product, assuming the price increase isn't too wild. Yeah. And so that's, if you can delight customers, and I think that comes back to, uh, Julian, good comment. It comes back to, you know, when we look at dollar-based net retention, what we're actually seeing there is the cohort we're seeing. These people are, these customers are hanging around and not only that, they're spending more. So there must be a reason why they're doing that. And that's a good, good insight there. Okay. So um, just, we've got a, just about 20 minutes left, but um, so a couple of the news stories that we've got out now, I think maybe we'll just fire from the hip here, uh, is Altium ASX ALU come out this week with its AGM, a really long-winded AGM, I've got to be honest. And I sat through the whole thing and it was a bit of fun, but there was really only a, a few key takeaways. So Altium does printed circuit board design software. Basically what that means is engineers and designers use its software to design those little chips that go inside phones, that go inside uh, computers that go inside these microphones, whatever they go inside there. Um, so at the end of the, the AGM Prezo, there was a, a basically this update and they said Altium is on track to achieve its guided range of full year fiscal 22 revenue of between US 209 million and US 217 million, which would represent growth of 16 to 20%, underlying EBITDA margin of 30 to 30, uh, 34% to 36% and ARR growth of 23 to 27%. The reason why this is important, and we talked about this in the show not too long ago, is Altium was the subject of a takeover offer from Autodesk. And Autodesk is obviously the big US um, kind of just all-in-one CAD and design business. And the, the, the company rejected the offer. At the time, I was pretty critical of the $38.50 offer to buy Altium because I thought that's a pretty good price. And management had in the last year really kind of been a bit shaky in terms of meeting their objectives for the first time in a long time. I've got to give them credit. And the the net result is Altium is now trading at $41 a share. The shares went up yesterday. Um, this revenue guidance is actually above our $210 million that we had forecast. You know, we're just pulling numbers out, but um, pretty strong result. So I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but the, the Altium business seems to be back to its stride. I think you're on mute again. Sorry, I was on mute. Yeah, so I mean... Uh... What's it's Altium's market cap is what about five billion or so? Yeah, I think it's about that. Yeah, five, five and a half billion or so, and then what the two hundred million US is more like what? Let's multiply that by one point four. Two hundred eighty million, kind of Aussie, yep. right? So I mean, you know, people are still paying what twenty, 20 times. times? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe reasonable. Um, and maybe it can continue delivering that level of growth, and maybe that that's pretty reasonable. So I don't know. Like I mean, to me, it looked like that was a good deal. <laughs> yeah, it did. It, it, yeah, I thought it was. And good. it's and it's still a good deal. I mean, within you know what ten percent of that price, right? I mean, it removes a lot of uncertainty. I mean, for from a shareholder's point of view, you 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 got the money and you could go home. <laughs> so yeah, and I think if you look across the ecosystem. Altium has done a good job. I'm not taking anything away from them. But what I would say is, and it's in a very good industry in terms of where it sits in the, the ecosystem of design and the future of the internet of things. There's a buzz phrase for you. Um, but the, the thing is, they do compete against some pretty big um, businesses. So we're looking at Mentor Graphics by Siemens. We're looking at Cadence Systems, Zucan, um, even Autodesk in some respects, slightly different. But you know these businesses um, are kind of gorillas. 
And Altium has done a good job, but it's not, you know, the uh, one horse race. So keep that in mind too. So I was a bit surprised. Uh, actually, as we record this, I think the, the shares are actually even, uh, they're up higher than well above the offer price of $38.50. They're $43. So um, I guess the joke's on Autodesk for now, for not upping that offer, but um, we'll see how that plays out. Well, the PE is only 115. So, so it's um, cheap. I, I, I am happy that uh, as an Autodesk shareholder, <laughs> I would have liked them to actually make a lower offer and not make an offer at that price. So uh, that's, that's, that's the other side's viewpoint. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, that's totally fair. So um, we've just had another question coming and I'll quickly get to this PowerBot. I'd love to hear your thoughts on SiteMinder. SiteMinder is a company that I'm looking at a little bit. It does hotel management uh, for properties. So basically, if you are a hotel, you can use SiteMinder software. Uh, it uploads to the to the to all of the different directories. So like booking.com, Expedia, um, wherever you go on the internet, even Google and book your, your hotels, you can, um, the properties themselves can use that software. There are some great um, insights on this throughout the ecosystem. There's an article on Rust Media. Uh, check it out. It's a pretty commoditized area. We're still doing our research. We actually jumped on Spaces last night, myself and a few analysts, and we talked about SiteMinder for a few hours. So if you're on Twitter, um, just say good day to us and we'll maybe bring you some more insights there. Uh, so the other thing that we wanted to talk about, which is a bit of a more of a macro um, view. So just in terms of China's slowdown, I'm really interested. I haven't kept up to date with the latest since Evergrande. So what's been going on? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a pullback in e-commerce spending. That is not just a China-specific thing. That's a that's Amazon has seen the same thing. Other e-commerce players are also seeing the same thing. That's that's a reopening, sort of um, reopening of the economy effect, and also some of the you know the pull ahead effect, right? Uh, that's going through. But it looks like you know, at least in Alibaba's case, for example, they make a lot of money on. Um, sort of like advertising or services that they provide to merchants, like through their platforms like T-Malls and things like that. So there's T-Mall, another one, uh, Tiabo, Tiabo, again, I forgot the name. So they, that growth has basically just completely fallen, fallen. like it's like, you know, 2% right. or 3%. Um, so basically like services fee that they get. So that, that is pretty significant, I think. And they have guided down their forward uh, revenue guidance. So basically, they expect basically the slowdowns kind of to continue. Um, and then I, I would say the cloud services too are not growing as fast as I would say, uh, you know, something like the GCP or Microsoft Azure is growing, for example. So it seems like it is a rounded effect of um, consumer slowdown, some business slowdown, because, you know, AWS equivalent services would be used by businesses. This isn't, that's not a consumer reflection, right? That's a reflection on how businesses uh, are uptaking cloud services. That There's that slowdown, there's, you know, then you add Evergrande to the mix and it looks like, um, you know, maybe, I'm not saying a hard landing or anything, but China maybe is going to see significantly slower growth um, hmm. in the years ahead, right? Now that has some implications for us here in Australia in the sense that we are heavily dependent on sending stuff to digging stuff from the ground and sending hmm. it to China. So if China's going to consume less of that, that's a problem for us, um, right? And, and of course, China is also a big um, market for other you know, for consumer discretionary company. You probably sell stuff into China and uh, lessening or slowing of demand is not, basically not a good thing. So 
something to, I think, watch. Um, the only caveat I would get is on the e-commerce front, a couple of things have happened. A, uh, there's been regulation tightening on stuff that Alibaba and Tencent can do and can't do, which has meant more competition. So there's a lot more competition now in the e-commerce space in, in China and very aggressive competition. So maybe it's not just um, slowing of uh, consumers, but also just more intense competition. Right. right? That's something to keep in mind. Mm. That's, I, yeah. yeah. I, I don't really have many companies in my portfolio. Maybe Altium might be one of them that is directly exposed to the consumer in China. Um, but we've talked about many companies. You don't have Apple? Us. Well, Apple, yes. But I mean, you know, it's funny I say that, that it's not really exposed, but it is now because it actually is growing so fast in China. So fast in China. <laughs> if, if, if you asked me two years ago, I would have said, oh, no, China's, you know, it's probably off the cards. It's probably not a thing, like all the data, you know. But now, you know, we saw in the last quarter, we talked about this. It is a big deal. So um, I, I probably have to correct my statement there. Um, so that's really interesting. And speaking of Ap- Apple, um, this brings in an interesting segue to this bubble. Um, at least that's what some people are calling it, which is the EV bubble. <laughs> yeah, the EV yeah, bubble. The EV bubble is very interesting because, I mean, well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go, uh, call it uh, a bubble yet. But, you know, what I think is interesting is um, just think about just the Rivian. So Rivian is the uh, uh, is the uh, truck manufacturer, which has um, yet to produce or has sold a few trucks, let's say, and um, you know so they've not hit scale, but they're they're priced uh, their market cap is well over hundred billion dollars now, and I mean to some extent that reflects the success of Tesla in the sense that it basically says that electric vehicles are the future, and therefore there's a lot of I guess, success being priced in for companies that haven't produced anything yet. Uh, Lucid, the same thing. It's like a 50, 60, $70 billion, something like that, some huge number. Uh, and, and the funny thing would be that, you know, Ford has a stake in Rivian. I mean, maybe they can just sell their stake <laughs> and they can maybe mm. pay off some debt and probably be worth half their market cap uh, that Ford has or something like that, <laughs> right? So uh, I think there's something there that is interesting and worth keeping on. I mean, it, it you can't really be pricing... Uh, on infinite, you know, price to vehicle sold is equal to infinity, right? <laughs> it kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah. And even if you go forward, I mean, it is not an easy game to scale uh, scale production, right? I mean, you know, they're not Absolutely. going to be producing a million vehicles next year or the year after, uh, just, just to set the context. So I think it's interesting. And at the same time, you, you know, we talked about like, for example, Apple, you know, back again in talk in, in the news, you know, they're making an EV, they're doing self-driving. So there's a little bit of, I would say the EV bubble uh, is, you know, maybe forming. Uh, what I do find interesting though, is if you look at the EV bubble and you think about the EV unit, there's Tesla trillion dollars, then there's, you know, Rivian at, you know, hundred billion dollars, no vehicles sold, Lucid at 70, 80 billion. Then there's the Chinese manufacturers, like, you know, there's Neo, which actually does produce vehicles. They actually, mm. you know, have multiple vehicles on the market. They even have some self-driving components there, which, you know, they have in partnership or either themselves are in partnership with, for example, Baidu, you know, that's, Significant, you know, if you compare just to a price to vehicles sold, a projected number of vehicles sold, those would look like a bargain compared to maybe many of the others, right? Mm. So uh, something to think about. And and China is the largest EV market in the world, if you think about it. And, mm. and they also have some of the most forward-thinking policies in terms of just encouraging use of EVs and things like that. So well, it's yeah. interesting, I think. There's a lot of focus, obviously, in China on environmental aspects as well. So 
it, like you said, there's, there is a lot of tailwind and a lot of demand for this uh, to come to fruition. Hey, so then, because we've spoken about, um, we spoke about the difference between the, the basically the way the problem is being solved from an autonomous vehicle perspective. So that's the EV side of things, but self-driving, uh, we spoke about uh, the difference between Tesla and Waymo. Um, Waymo is actually expanded outside of Phoenix now. I think it's into California in parts now taking rides there. Um, do any of these other companies and even the rumors of Apple, I mean, there's not much to go on. Do any of those interest you from the autonomous side of things or is it purely Tesla is winning? Let's just stick with that. Well, the thing with the autonomy right now, is still very hard to say what's going on. Like, I mean, so uh, Waymo's autonomy works in fully mapped out regions, right? If it's fully mapped out and it's got LiDAR, yeah then it kind of works in those limited areas that they're allowed to kind of drive, right? Uh, that's like basically saying that I can drive my Tesla up and down like Campbelltown. Um, and that's it. <laughs> Maybe actually my Tesla's current software will be fine driving in Campbelltown. So um, as an example. So, so I am not really sure. On the other hand, I mean, what Tesla is trying to solve is like sort of a global optimal in terms of saying, okay, you know, you want to be a vision first uh, company and you want to look at what you see and, and decide how you're going to drive based on that. That's because how we drive uh, as well. And you've got additional, you know, you've got these other sensors, you know, um, around the car uh, that you can utilize. Uh, so it's so ultrasonic sensors that they've got, not the radar. So the radar they have removed. So I'm not sure. I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm of the view that I think the other approaches are not right uh, and they're too complex and they do not scale. We don't know anything about Apple's approach, but Apple clearly doesn't have any cars on the ground other than the, the fleet that it has been testing in. So they have a fleet of vehicles that they use for autonomous testing in California. Um, and that, like many other companies, they've got fleet, 50, 60, 100, however many vehicles, but there isn't, they, they don't have data on the ground. I will say that it looks to me that Apple's approach is a bit like Google's or Waymo's approach because what Apple has been focusing a lot on is in the maps. So if you look at Apple's it maps- It's yeah. come a long, long way over the last 12 to 24 months. It's incredible. Yeah, so I mean, it's an incredible improvement in Apple maps, you know, to the point, at least in many places, Apple maps, I think is better, better than Google maps, mm. but- In major cities, uh, I've found that. In major major cities, it's, it's, it's really true. And, but I think the way they're working on that suggest that their approach is actually very similar to what Google Maps approach might be um, for something like Waymo. So having very detailed maps and then using those maps. So again, I'm not sure how that scales, but it's, I think this remains a fascinating, um, um, I guess, you, story of evolution. Do you, did you ever see when you were holding on to, um, when you were holding on to, your Tesla shares and Apple shares, did you ever see a path for them becoming one for Apple buying Tesla? Um, well, I also, so, okay. So when I, when Tesla was in the 2018, 2019, when Tesla was down, I think to like a 30 billion market cap, I did really think that Tesla would, I did think that Tesla had a floor in terms of Tesla being, I mean, if you're Google or if you're Apple and you're interested in the space and you see a market cap of around 30, 20 billion or something like that. And you could basically offer a 30%, 20% market premium and potentially mm. acquire that company. You would, if you're interested in the space, you're mad not to do it. Yeah. Um, apparently uh, Elon Musk had approached Cook to sell 
a Tesla to Apple if um, Cook did not take the meeting, uh, as at least what um, is the story. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Yeah. Yeah, I heard, I heard a recent interview where basically, you know, what Cook basically, you know, Cook says good things about Musk and Tesla and, and so on and so on, and basically says that, look, there have been many companies that we could have potentially acquired. They could have acquired Disney. They could have acquired, you know, the Star Wars franchise and things like that. So, I mean, I think philosophically, Apple does not acquire big companies and 30, 40 billion, 50 billion would be a big acquisition in app for in Apple's land. It's not a huge acquisition given Apple's size or cash balance and things like that. Um, but yeah, I did think that there was a possibility of it happening, but it didn't happen, which is mm. good that it didn't happen. Um, <laughs> good for you. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's good to have iconic companies that remain independent, right? I mean, it is. Yeah. An, That's a yeah an iconic company that stays independent would go on to do other iconic, potentially go on to do other iconic things, which is always an interesting uh, space, right? Mm. But yeah, but, but you know, some of that's another way to think about investment is that, you know, well, my downside is probably capped because uh, there's enough IP here, enough brand recognition that somebody might be interested in acquiring it. Mm, absolutely. That downside protection is offered by a potential bidder in the market. Well, that's EV, uh, the latest in EV and autonomous vehicles from Apple, Tesla and all around the world. As always, I'm pleased to be joined by Seven Investing's Dr. Aneban Mahantni. You can find him on Twitter at 7A Mahanti, and you can find me on Twitter at Owen Rask. You can subscribe to Seven Investing's newsletter by heading to seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe, and you can find out more about what we're doing at Rask or enroll in one of our free courses at www.rask.com.au. As always, thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast.